I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Teachers unions to ballot members on strike action and Garda representative groups issue rare joint statement over vaccine prioritization. But other sectors say shouting loudest shouldn't get you moved up the list. On our first panel tonight, Neil Richmond, Finnegale TD, the General Secretary of the AGSI, Antoinette Cunningham, and John Boyle of the INTO and Neil MacDonald of ISME join us via Skype. Also, government row over mandatory hotel quarantine continues as the Cabinet is expected to add EU countries to the red list next week. And with 41 police officers injured in Northern Irish riots and further violence tonight, we'll have the latest. And historian Dermot Ferreter will discuss how best to mark the upcoming Northern Ireland centenary. Get in touch via Twitter with the hashtag TonightVMTV. So first tonight, we're joined in studio by Neil Richmond, the Finnegale TD, and General Secretary of the AGSI, Antoinette Cunningham. John Boyle of the INTO and Neil MacDonald of ISME are with us via Skype. And if I can start with you, John, how confident are you that having put this out to the members, the teachers of Ireland, uh, this vote for industrial action, that they will support the hard line being taken by their union bosses in relation to the vaccination programme? Well, I'm very confident that the members are fully behind the members who voted today. Um, don't forget now, this was a Congress with 900 people in attendance, uh, democratically elected from every branch in Ireland. And it was those members who overwhelmingly supported this move. It's a precautionary move. It's designed to put pressure on the government who have once again refused to follow expert public health advice. That health advice made it very, very clear that the age-based approach is the best approach, but it also clarified that there's a common sense element to the advice. The common sense element being that the people who work in crowded settings and live in crowded settings were also supposed to be prioritised. And government, of course, just knocked the workers off the list. Um, the guards, Antoinette's members, our members, members uh, who work in shops that ISME would represent, uh, all dropped off the list last week, and this is a major, major blow to the frontline workforce. OK, but they say that they were working on public health advice. You're saying that they're picking, choosing, is it, elements of the public health advice? Well, I am saying that, but, I mean, we're not surprised. This is the same government, uh, Neil Richmond's party, the Tanisha was having attacks uh, at Neffet before Christmas. They've been picking and choosing advice all year. And when it suits them now at this particular time, it obviously uh, was very controversial, the rollout of the vaccine. So to divide workers among workers, they simply decided we'll change the goalpost midstream and we'll abandon all those people who are working in the front line, risking their lives for the people of Ireland and for the children of the viewers 
to make sure that they're in school every day. Neil Richmond, you're picking and choosing public health advice to suit yourselves and you're putting the teachers and many other frontline workers at risk by doing so. Yeah, I think that's needless personalisation from John and I'm a bit surprised by that and disappointed. We've done a lot of work together over the years. But what clearly has happened is the government, Cabinet, has taken advice from NIAC, the Supreme Authority. We're following the guidelines and the direction that pretty much every EU country is following, that they're following in Northern Ireland, that ultimately it doesn't matter what job you do, the people who are most at risk from getting very sick and dying from this virus is clearly weighted on age-based category. We heard from Dr. Mary Favour of the um, GP Advisory Committee saying that every time in her surgery she gets uh, a notification that a patient over 50 has tested positive for COVID, her heart sinks because that person is far more likely to get very sick and possibly but die. But aren't you far more likely to get the illness if you're in a frontline position as a worker, like a teacher or a guarder? So isn't it better to protect those who are more likely to get the illness? And no one's denying that teachers and guardi are in high risk professions, as are bus drivers, as are shop workers, as are factory workers. But ultimately, it's about managing the impact of this virus. Because if you are 65 or you're 70, you're not going to be sick and off work for a week and maybe you have to take to your bed for a couple of days, you will have a far a 70, 70 times greater chance of finding yourself in ICU. That's not acceptable. We've been asked consistently to follow the science, to follow the medical advice, to follow the recommendation of the but very commission. John is alleging that you're picking and choosing alleging. from the medical the advice, and scientific The cabinet advice. has been quite clear, and I think this is what was quite unfortunate. The advice given by NIAC the Supreme Authority who deal with the vaccination programme has been quite clear. And as I said, this isn't something that's just happening in Ireland. This is what's happening in Northern Ireland. This is what's happening in most other countries in the EU. OK, well. well, let me go back to you on that, John, because what about the fact that this is NIAC saying it, that there is the much, much higher risk of death or serious illness for an older person, that they are the ones who are deserving the priority? Absolutely right. And nobody argues with the older people, the vulnerable. From the very beginning, they're the people, the health workers, of course, who ought to have been prioritised. But, you know, the NIAC advice is there in black and white. It's published on the government website. At, at Category 9, it makes it very, very clear that those who work or live in crowded settings should be prioritised. Would appear to me in a parallel process. It seems to be that's the way they're going to roll it out for those who live in crowded settings. But they're picking those and not picking the workers. And you know, it is ironic, Matt, on World Health Organization's Day for World Health, that those organizations like the WHO and the UN have prioritized teachers for vaccinations, yet our government have turned their back on teachers, SNAs, and all the people who are keeping our schools open in the last week after promising and writing to every single school in Ireland um, when they wanted us to get back in on the 1st of February with numbers gone through the roof promised us that we would be in the first third of the population. And I, I obviously have a father, 86 years of age. We wanted him to be vaccinated, but he can't understand how his grandchild working on a supply panel around Dublin, meeting 150 children every week, um, that she wouldn't be prioritised for a vaccine as a 30-year-old, while another 30-year-old who's working from home or studying from home and buying online produce from the supermarket or, or from other retail outlets that they would be prioritised at the exact same time as the frontline Garda, the frontline SNA, the frontline shop worker. It just seems bizarre to me and there's no common sense being taken into account here at all. Well, yet we've also learned today of a story that SNAs and teachers from Wicklow 
and O'Leary got vaccinated yesterday. How could that happen if we're told it can't be done for SNAs and teachers? Yeah, and it's certainly an anomaly and the Minister has been quite clear and quite frank that he wants to report on this, that we have a very clear, and there's been occasions this in various hospitals, well documented, that there's a very clear vaccination rollout strategy that has to be applied by all vaccinators. And I just want to pick up on one point that John hasn't acknowledged, and it's very key, that there is a great level of efficiencies that'll be also taken by changing the vaccination strategy. And the fact is the vast majority of people in their 40s and 50s, regardless of their occupation, will probably be vaccinated quicker, if not at the exact same time, based on the ability. We're going to see a huge amount of vaccines. We already are seeing a huge amount of vaccines coming into this country, finally, and our system is standing up and getting them rolled out. And that pace that will continue to pick up will ensure that the efficiencies will allow to make sure that regardless of occupation, if you're in that age cohort, that is, as I said, in the 40s or 50s, you will be vaccinated most likely a lot earlier than if we were to go through the previous strategy. Okay, Antoinette, you got to meet with Roland Glynn, the Deputy Chief Medical Officer. Um, what response did you get? I mean, did you put the same line from John as in, you know, workers, frontline workers are supposed to, under the health advice, be vaccinated? Yeah, well, we were very pleased to meet Dr. Ronan Glynn today and we thank him for meeting the Garda staff associations. And I suppose one thing that we did get clarity on was how this decision to move to an age-based vaccination programme was made on recommendations of NIAC over to the expert group of NEFIT and then ultimately to government who made the final decision that this is how the vaccination programme should be rolled out at this point. So that was interesting from our perspective because we, we hear a lot of talk about the science and the science and we don't dispute the age-based science that is there. But what Dr. Ronan Glynn did share with us today is that transmission is also a huge factor. And of course, this is the unavoidable situation as Gardaí that we find ourselves in is a continued exposure to a high-risk environment that we can't avoid due to the confrontational nature of the job that we do. And there did are... Did he tell you that you should be vaccinated? He... Well, of course, we're all going to be vaccinated. No, no, but you know what I mean. Did yeah. he tell you that the Gardaí should get priority when it comes to vaccination? No, he didn't say that. But he did explain uh, that it was a government decision to move to this programme. But he did also talk about the evidence in relation to transmission. Not, not evidence as strong as the age-based approach, of course. That's why they've chosen to go with that one. But very strong evidence about transmission. Now... Sorry, did he acknowledge, though, that this was a recommendation to government? This wasn't something that the government made up on its own? No, part. no, it was a recommendation to government. Okay. But the ultimate decision... But do you accept that, then? Well, that that's the way it's going to have to be? Well, what I don't accept is that it, there can't be a parallel programme running alongside the age-based approach for high-risk workers such as Gardaí. Look, Matt, we find ourselves in unavoidable situations. We found ourselves last weekend dealing with a situation in relation to hotel quarantining. Now, can I just tell you about hotel quarantining briefly? Every other person that's involved in hotel quarantining, from the hotel staff, the private security, the defence forces, are all vaccinated. And I'd like to ask Neil, why government think it's OK to protect every one of those people involved in hotel quarantining and not protect Gardaí. As a result of what we had to deal with last weekend, seven members of Angarda Siakana had to go into self-isolation. There's no protected place for guards to self-isolate. They go home to their families. They go and live with their elderly parents, with their children. And I would like to, to ask Neil, if, if government have a responsibility towards Angarda Siakana, why does he think it's okay to continually expose us to environments where we have no choice? We, we had a member who went recently into an A&E department to a highly aggressive male inside in a hospital, spat, assaulted the guardie, knocked him to the ground. The security staff, the nurses, the doctors and everybody else in there was vaccinated and the guardie weren't. 
Neil? So there you have continued examples where guards cannot avoid it and where we then go back. And when we leave that A&E, by the way, the next call is to de deliver groceries to somebody. The next call is to a domestic violence. So are we transmitting this as we go along and why are we continually exposed? No, and that, that's a very fair concern and I completely understand it. And I know throughout this process, the relationship between government and the Guardi and the representative organisations has worked for as much accommodation, looking for extra equipment, looking for extra Guardi to be attested out of Templemore. But I think I have to go back to the clear point that it was made based on scientific recommendation. This wasn't, government is responsible for every decision. The government makes those decisions. But NIAC's advice was quite clear that the way that this system will allow the process be expedited will crucially ensure that the vast majority of Gardaí will probably get the vaccine when they're going to get it. But equally, far more people who are at much greater risk of not necessarily getting the tr transmission of this virus, but getting really, really sick. You know, those, that cohort, it doesn't matter where you work, if you're 60, if you're 65, if you get this virus, you're going to get very sick and potentially end up in ICU. And that's why this, the, that parallel with the possibility to speed up the process will ensure that those very guardy on the beat, the vast majority in and cohort, will get it at the Matt, same can, time. Can, can I just say, and Neil should know this, there are no guards aged 65. They don't exist no, because we mandatorily... 50, 55, no, just, just one second fair. now. The majority of people of that age in, in, on Garda Síochána are senior ranking officers. And the reason we issued a joint statement today from the four staff associations is because the senior ranking officers feel it's unfair. They want the junior members who are going out into the high risk confrontation situations on the front line vaccinated first. They don't hold with that argument, Neil, because they're the ones that are managing and supervising in office space. You must mostly. accept the argument that there will be great I, efficiencies made over if, to allow if, a far faster rollout of this vaccination rather than going into 15 cohorts you go directly if I into could. an age back and work it through yep. every sector of society Leave and target the, I have another guest I want to bring No, the, the, the final point I want to make is this if government can make a decision to roll out an age an age based vaccination program then they can also make a decision to run a parallel program for high risk jobs such as Angarish Okay Shikana. I want to bring in Neil Macdonald of Ismi because Neil many of your members are employing people who are in potentially dangerous situations in dealing with the public so do you want them also to have accelerated vaccines uh, well, in, indeed, Matt, we were we were asked at the start of this process to lobby and agitate on behalf of certain employer groups um, where their employees were involved in frontline activities, and we took the view, um, having while absolutely empathising with them in the same way as we, we empathise with those um, unions you have on tonight that uh, no, we, we wouldn't do that, um, simply because we view this as a public health issue, not an industrial relations issue. Um, were we to start that process of, of singling out individual groups uh, that should be prioritised, you know, you're left with the question of where does it end? Um, so we are, as, as, as unsatisfactory as we may find it, uh, we are we are satisfied to proceed on the basis of the NIAC advice and that vaccination should take place on an age-related basis. And will that position be maintained if you find that more vocal lobby groups get their way? Well, I, I think that's our fear. And, uh, you know, when, when we saw... Um, and I say at the outset that we absolutely appreciate and empathise uh, with the unions in this situation. We have had... 
similar approaches made to ourselves, which we have had to deal with in the way that I've just said. And it's it's very difficult. It's even more difficult when uh, particular groups have been indicated that they were on a vaccination schedule, which has now changed. And I want to acknowledge that as well. But the difficulty is if one interest group uh, successfully lobbies on, on behalf of their members, where does it end? I think we'll have a, a significant uh, queue of people, uh, you know, looking to, to have themselves elevated up the vaccination queue. And bear in mind, we've also had frontline workers working throughout the entire pandemic in, in retail, transport, childcare, warehousing, distribution, uh, in the in the absence of, of a dedicated vaccine rollout. And, you know, they're the sorts of people who are going to uh, demand that they are vaccinated immediately um, were, were this policy to proceed. I want to go back to you, John, because it's been a very difficult year for primary and secondary pupils and also for their parents. <clears throat> who are now facing the possibility of further disruption, not because of COVID, but because of industrial action. Is this really an appropriate way to threaten to actually to get what you want? Well, I suppose no union, no more than the unions that Neil deals with, would take that action um, without having been forced into it. And what has happened here is that all of those workers who work in the shops of Ireland, who are at number nine on the list, the childcare staff were at number 10, the teachers and SNAs were at number 11. They've all been bumped off the list in favour of people of the same age who are working from home. And there's no common sense behind this. And a lot of parents are telling us that they want schools to remain open. The safest way to keep schools open, and the WHO have backed this up, is to vaccinate the frontline staff in those schools. So when we heard today um, about the special class, the special schools being vaccinated in Neil's constituency, um, you know, he did talk about the fiasco in the beacon, but I hope he didn't describe what happened today as a fiasco because that was the best news I got that, that the HSE has recognised that the frontline staff in special schools who were at the top of the pile from the Department of Education's point of view are being vaccinated in huge numbers in South Dublin. So that's a sign to us that somebody sees the sense and the common sense. And hopefully when we get into the talks with the department and with government, that they will have that parallel process where if you have a 50-year-old teacher and a 50-year-old uh, worker working from home, that some priority will be given to the 50-year-old okay. teacher. Uh, John, the minister couldn't John, even guarantee, Matt, that by September that the teachers would be vaccinated 18 months into the pandemic. So we, we obviously had to take this move today, but it will get us into talks. We've been in talks so many times all year, and every time we had a major crisis or problem, we okay. solved it and in, we got for the John, In result. fairness to Neil, what happened today wasn't in his constituency, but I do have to ask you, is this not another example of poor politics on the part of the government, that you had a system in place that everybody had accepted, that the teachers had signed up to earlier this year, and you have managed to create an enormous political controversy by changing things? No, we had a system in place and we got expert medical scientific advice that a better system that would protect more people was possible. The same system that's in operation in Northern Ireland and across the EU. And I think John using terms like bump tough is misleading and it's disappointing. The fact that people are trying, talking about industrial action has absolutely upset so many other teachers and parents and crucially the most the best way to keep schools open and society open is to bring down community transmission, bring down the pressure on our health system and bring down the threat of the virus. You do that 
clearly we've been told by an age-based system. Okay, unfortunately we're going to have to leave it there for now. Our thanks to Antoinette Cunningham for joining us, Neil Macdonald and John Boyle. Neil Richmond is staying with us because after the break, as the row over mandatory hotel quarantine continues, the Cabinet is now expected to add EU countries to the red list next week. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back. Finnegale TD Neil Richmond has stayed with us. We're also joined by Breed Smith, People Before Profit TD. And joining us via Skype is Dr. Cleanly Kellogg, Consultant in Infectious Diseases at St. James's Hospital. Because today the European Medicines Agency issued statements about possible side effects of the AstraZeneca vaccine. How significant might that have been? So I think the first thing to say is that it shows us that the system of surveillance of vaccine side effects is working. So the system has picked up these very rare but very serious side effects um, with the AstraZeneca vaccine, these very unusual types of blood clots, um, either in the veins that surround the brain um, or the veins that go into the spleen. So they're unusual places to have blood clots. And it's a particular type of blood clot that's associated with having low levels of platelets as well. And um, platelets are the things that make your blood clot. So so unusual and it was picked up and it's very rare. Um, and I think now what needs to be done is to look at a, a risk-benefit analysis of the vaccines um, in, in particular age groups. So we know that it's young women who are particularly at risk of this type of clot. We know that in the UK, where they've given tw over 20 million people uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine, they've had less than 80 incidences of this clot. So it's a very, very rare side effect. And we do know that COVID itself um, clearly makes people very severely unwell. Uh, it can kill people. Um, and also a lot of women who get COVID have this syndrome called long COVID, where they can really have disabling fatigue, um, disabling shortness of breath, really, really persistent symptoms. So like any medication, you need to weigh up what good is it going to do you compared to what are the possible harms and how likely are each to occur. Um, and I think that now what will happen is that our national bodies who have the best idea of the incidence of COVID in Ireland at the moment, who have the best idea of what access do we have to alternative vaccines for young women, will weigh it up and look at whether we recommend that people keep going um, as we're doing using AstraZeneca and younger people, or whether, um, as the UK has done, whether very young women under the age of 30 should be um, given offered another vaccine instead. But you've no fears that this will in any way impact on people's enthusiasm for taking up a vaccine? 
So it's really interesting. Um, you know, we think we're these rational beings, um, but we're not computers, and we don't necessarily just do the maths and make the decision on the maths. And we can see that with vaccine hesitancy, um, for example, with the MMR vaccine, which we know is very safe. We know measles is very can be very dangerous in kids. So hopefully this, this should actually really reassure people that the system is working, that we're picking up very rare side effects, and we're really weighing up the risks and benefits for each individual group of people. Um, hopefully it won't increase vaccine hesitancy. I know myself, if I was under 30, which I'm not, um, I probably would still be happy to go ahead with the AstraZeneca vaccine, knowing that there's a lot of COVID circulating, having seen many of my colleagues get COVID um, and have been very unwell and very long-term side effects from it, that I personally would probably weigh up that risk benefit and take the AstraZeneca vaccine, even if I was under 30. But that decision can be made on a national level by NIAC and other similar bodies. Okay, Neil Richmond, if I go back to you in relation to this. Is this the big issue though really when it comes to vaccination in this country seems to be getting enough supplies and having enough people to actually give the vaccines out? Yeah, well, I think we've seen over the last couple of days is that when the supply comes, um, we're able to vaccinate quite a lot of people in one go. And if we look at the forecast of supplies that are coming, the vast majority of supplies that have come and are due to come are actually the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. There is a huge take-up and there isn't vaccine hesitancy, thankfully, in this country. And we are starting to see more and more people getting vaccinated. And by June, we should be able to meet that average target. Even and if we get all the supplies, do we have enough people to actually administer the vaccines? Because it's very confusing all of the figures that we're getting from people in the health system as to how many people are available and have been trained up to actually do it. Yeah, and there'll certainly be a few stories out there, people talking about junior cert results that aren't actually accurate. But ensuring that we have the exact amount of vaccinators trained up is a key priority. NIAC and the What's whole system... What's the number, system, do you know? I don't know the number I don't think anyone beat. knows, do they? Breeze, does anyone know how many vaccinators we have? No, indeed. And I've asked this of the Taoiseach and of Stephen Donnelly on the floor of the dial, and they haven't answered me, certainly not inspired any confidence. And um, listening to Neil there saying that the stories out there about being asked for junior cert that aren't true, they are true. My own niece was asked for ridiculous certs from her childhood, for example, evidence that she had the BCG, even though she was able to produce medical evidence because she is a nurse and a midwife. She's in her 40s. She's been doing this stuff practically all her life. And they're looking for the most ridiculous certs going way back. Uh, and they still haven't got to the point where they can tell her that she'd be employed as a vaccinator. And does it surprise you that now, in April, we're actually looking to sign up vaccinators when this should have been done maybe even late last Absolutely. year. Absolutely. And come here, to be honest with you, I have no confidence, and I don't like saying this, but I have no confidence that we're going to be able to do it because our, from the get-go, our public health apparatus was in a very, very poor situation. All aspects of our public health, no proper national Im immunology database. Uh, we've treated our public health doctors abysmally. And now we're using private companies to employ people to do the most simplest of jobs and making it very, very difficult. So if we get the supply, the million point, 1.2 million in June and then in July and then whatever, all of these months ahead we're being promised this, that and the other, will we have enough vaccinators? And we need that guarantee from the government. And at the moment, it doesn't look like we will. Breed really has put her finger on something else there that, you know, got the information flow as to who mm -hmm. to get there. Is that the real story, do you think, in relation to the change to the rollout of the vaccine? Is that you didn't have enough information to know where people went in the cohorts, so you made it simpler by just doing it by age? 
No, you made it simpler because it goes scientific advice that this will make it faster. But I think it's really disappointing when Breed says she has no confidence because the confidence is in the evidence that when supply is in the country, it is going out. There isn't mass amounts of vaccines stored in some freezer. They're getting out. The limited reserve are there to make sure that second doses can be applied. And I have absolute confidence in our GPs and in our pharmacists and in our vaccination settings. My point is, Neil, that through. when you no, get, I your point. When you just get the mine, Breed, and then you million in. in a month... You haven't had anything like that yet. If you get 1.2 million, no, but over June, the last couple of days, be to be fair, to... over the last couple of days, and we get the, I got the figures in the in my doll office about four o'clock today. The scene, the tens of thousands that are being vaccinated, over 30,000 on Good Friday alone, a supposed public holiday. It is building up in France, a country with supposed vaccine uh, hesitancy. 400,000 people were vaccinated today, which is still proportionately less than we vaccinated here in Ireland in the last recorded day. So I do have confidence in the system. I have confidence well, in our GPs. I certainly do, and I wish I was getting. Really that I and I've asked many of the same questions you have, even as a government backbencher. But I think when you come up here and say you've no confidence in the system, that sends a very lousy message to our GPs and our pharmacists who it are sacrificing lots of It also sends a lousy message to my constituents, and I don't like saying it. But the truth is, I personally know people who are being thwarted while they want to give their services as nurses, as health professionals to help to deal with this public health uh, crisis that we have. And it's just ridiculous and the, the way they are being treated. And the evidence, beyond knowing people, the evidence shows that when we have the vaccines, they are being administered rapidly and safely to the people but who need them most. We haven't had them to making, scale. Yes, when it goes up in massive scale, when they arrive in much bigger numbers, do we have enough people to do it at the speed required? NIAC has ensured there will be enough people. And what we have in terms of supply, and supply has gone up massively over the last week, the amount of people needed to meet that supply has been there. And we still haven't fully got out into using all the pharmacists and all the people who've been signed up to all the government schemes. There will be scale. The vaccine numbers, are you can see them every day in statistical evidence, not hearsay, that they are now in the country, just like in other EU countries. And we can, all of us are starting to know more and more people who've got those vaccines every day. The pharmacists are day. still signing up. They have been looking for months to become involved. What is wrong with a system when we know we were going to have an enormous amount of vaccines coming that skilled professionals who give the flu vaccine are still waiting to get signed up to give this vaccine months after they asked? And they will be signed up and they will be Why rolled up. Why haven't they been signed up already? And they will be signed up and they will, ro will be rolled up as the supply requires. You're not At the moment, the question. And this is what I'm trying to answer my question, but I'm getting from both ways. We have the system that every vaccine that's coming in, we have more than enough vaccinators, as is we have more than enough vaccinators to meet the estimated supply and we'll bring in the people as they are needed. See, I think this is the problem that no matter whether it's about hotel quarantine and whether it's about the, the rate of vaccination, whether it's about um, what directions they're given to the people in terms of distance and how many people they can mix with. The government give confusing messages. There's no clarity and there's no definite answer. You can't answer, Matt, how many uh, vaccinators will you have because you don't know because you're making the bags of it again. No, I, and I no, honestly... Reed, you can't, no, I'm sorry. I, I you're, honestly you're going think, in there, you have no confidence uh, no, no, and finish, you're making the bags of it. But if you look at the let statistics, my Reed, overall that's unfair. Point. Statistics, your statistics are not convincing people. But Give statistics us are seeing people vaccinated answers. and that's what matters, Give us direct answers. People are being vaccinated. The system is people online. People are being vaccinated. People are also not being vaccinated. And there's loads of confusions and loads of mix-up. 100 people got the wrong appointment in Ballyfermot less than a month ago. Last week, 100 people got the wrong appointment appointment somewhere in Dunleary and they have been left waiting. There are lots of problems. Today we saw the HSE issuing vaccinations to teachers and um, SNAs when they were told they wouldn't get them. 
look, just be honest and say there's lots of confusion, there's lots of problems. We're ironing it out, but here is how we are ironing well, it out. But you're also demanding you simplistic answers out. and simplistic facts. You don't give vaccination thing, you're a mandatory hotel quarantine, saying that everything had to be straightforward. You're dealing with a once in a century pandemic. We have have seen the millionth dose of vaccine given out today. There is huge work being done by NIAC, by the HSE, by our GPs, by the okay. vaccinators. And I think they deserve credit and they don't need continuously a TV coming saying that, that it's a shambles and they've no confidence. hotel quarantine because you've told us countless times tonight that you followed the public health advice. Well, the public health advice was to introduce mandatory quarantining back in May and you have had advice in relation to the number of countries that should be on the list and you're not taking that advice. Why not? But I think there's a balance here. One, a lot of people are saying that mandatory hotel quarantine is somehow the silver bullet that will ensure that we get our numbers down to single figures. But obviously the fact that we have an open border with Northern Ireland and ultimately there are legal restrictions and that's why the Attorney General, the Department of Health, as you've mentioned, has discussed the issue. The Attorney General says there are legal restrictions and commitments under European treaties that it's not a matter of signing a pen. And crucially, and this is something that's lost and people are wrongly talking about students on Erasmus, there are hundreds and thousands of Irish people who still need to maintain essential travel to the continent. I have a constituent who has to go to Germany every month to get cancer treatment that simply isn't available here for a rare disorder. If mandatory hotel quarantine comes in, he won't get his treatment, he won't be able to that's get That's an understandable case. He also but, won't be able but, to get flights. But 14,000 people came into this country the week after quarantine was introduced. Were those 14,000 essential flights? Well, they worked out that 60% of them were essential. The other 40% rightly weren't, but we already have the strictest travel restrictions of any EU country in terms of the requirement for, yes, mandatory hotel quarantine from the listed destinations, for PCR tests on arrival and for isolation at home for those who aren't in mandatory systems and follow-up testing and inspections. But crucially, and this is something, travel coming into the state is about 3% at the moment. Bringing in mandatory hotel quarantine for every country in the land isn't going to remove community transmission. It isn't going to address the key challenges. What has been brought in has been important. It's so, kept the Brazilian variant out. It was caught in quarantine. That was very effective. But people will tell you that, no, no, it should be very simple that you just simply bring in mandatory hotel quarantine for everyone coming into the state. And ultimately, we have three airports in Northern Ireland where people can just direct and come over the border. So, we, so the government dreams up a list of 30-odd countries and then says that'll do it. While the, well, they there's, very, there's, variants, there's variants, Brazil, variants South Africa. there's variants rampant in countries like France, Germany and Italy, where there's frequent flights in and out of the country all the time. Now, I don't like this no more than you do, mm. but we need to bring the figures down. We need to get the, the level of infection right down. And keeping the airports and the travel open is not going to cut it. It's just not going to cut it. And I honestly believe that the problem the government has is that they're being lobbied by IBEC, by no, ISME, by the tourism industry, by the hospitality industry, just like they were before Christmas. And they feel the pressure of big business and the, their own base, both Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael's base are made up of those no, organisations. That's, that's wrong you feel unfair, the pressure that on the one that. hand, and on the other hand, you should be doing what's right for no, the country. No, we're looking at the factual challenges. Let's look at the, the factual challenges. Like you talk about it's before Christmas. It's a repeat Christmas. of what happened before Christmas. in from Britain, they, those that were stopped, they simply went up to Northern Ireland. This isn't the silver bullet that you're talking about. We're not New Zealand. We need lorry oh, drivers sorry, to continue to supply us with medicines. If doesn't work, then why did you bring it in for 30 countries? Well, we brought it for 30 And then when it came to countries where there could be actually more danger coming from, I will be won't do that because there are EU and friends. And Breed referred to them incorrectly as countries that were made up, but it was countries like Brazil and South Africa where there's virulent... I said you made um, up the list. Made up the list. And I'm going to tell you, the countries that are on the list 
based on scientific advice, have higher infection rates, but also have those strains. France has a much higher variants. infection rate than Israel, at which has moment. lots of vaccinations, and Israel's on the list and France isn't. And we look at the legal implications, and this is something that's dismissed out of hand. And we, we and I had this conversation actually look, last other March about Northern Europe Italy. countries have banned foreign travel from... They stopped Irish, Ireland going into... One country has. Denmark Irish. stopped us going in. Yeah, for a limited period. Yeah. But Denmark was also back, and then it was brought back but in. But that didn't break any laws. And it's laws. not very simple. So it, what, no, this is... It but can why break laws. Always, why is this country always beholden to European laws instead of doing the right thing? We're beholden to the rule of law. We're beholden but to you, our responsibilities. And we're beholden to Irish citizens who could get caught behind this and who won't be able to get cancer treatments, who won't be able to get home for months on end. The there truth is, is Neil, you the truth is you're beholden to big business. No, you're beholden to big business. below you because it's a slur that isn't accurate. We're beholden to Irish citizens across the EU if you were, and we you have a responsibility to them and I think you know that. Okay, very briefly, Kleena has been waiting patiently and I do want to end this section on a positive note. Are there any vaccine bonuses that you could suggest for us? Unfortunately, we don't seem to have this sound. Our apologies for that. We'll get Cleaner back yes. another day to suggest possible va vaccine bonuses for us. Okay, we'll leave it there. Our thanks to Finnegale TD, Neil Richmond, Breed Smith, the People Before Profit TD, and Dr. Cleaner Nick Kelly. And after the break, violence continues tonight in Northern Ireland. We'll have the latest. And historian Dermot Ferriter on how best to mark the Northern Ireland centenary. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back. Now, 41 police officers have been injured in the past week in rioting in Belfast and Derry. We're joined via Skype by Belfast Telegraph columnist Alison Morris. And Alison, there have been more reports of rioting this evening. What has happened? There have. There is currently there is riot police in the Shankill and on the Springfield areas of Belfast. There was a, a double-decker bus was hijacked by gangs of youths earlier on and set on fire. Um, and there's currently the transit had to pull all public transport from most of the routes in Belfast. So we thought after last night there was a fairly quiet night and that maybe things were going to start to peter out. But that seems not to be the case. In fact, this has probably been one of the, the more intense evenings of violence we've had since this started just over a week ago. What's provoking all of this? Is this political protest about a border down the Irish Sea or is it really just an excuse for some people to go out and cause trouble? There's, there's a number of agendas all feeding into it at once. So we have the fact that loyalists have been very angry in relation to the Northern Ireland Protocol and what they see as a betrayal of their sovereignty by Boris Johnson. Um, that has been feeding their anger. We have also got anger and disillusionment at the PSNI and what they what they perceive. And this is only a perception to be two-tier policing that is slanted towards the nationalist community. And then we just have general unrest among loyalists, and I think that's been growing for quite some time. We know that Brexit advanced calls for a border poll, and that discussion has been taking place. We know that there has been changes just to situations such as parades that have been cancelled and never brought back again. And there's an ongoing issue. 
And there's also the issue that we have, you know, political unionism have continued to say, especially around election time, that unionists are angry, that loyalists are angry, and that's trickled down. And what we now see is, is crowds of young people who are probably pretty disengaged from the political process. I don't think that they're too concerned about the complexities of custom checks at a sea border, but they do understand when people talk about an economic United Ireland, they too, do t understand when they believe or they perceive that nationalism, nationalism and, and republicanism has benefited more from the peace than they have. And I think that all of that has all came together. Probably these protests would have been seen earlier had we not been mid-pandemic. I think that the restrictions probably kept people off the streets for longer. You also have to remember there are sections of loyalist paramilitaries who continue to recruit long after the ceasefires. And there are individuals within those loyalist paramilitaries who are not fully wedded to peace and are using this as an excuse to flex their muscles. And then we have something else which feeds into it, which is loyalist criminality. So sections of the UDA in Southeast Afton, UDA, they are currently being targeted by the PSNI and the National Crime Agency. They're heavily involved in drug dealing and extortion. With some success, the police have managed to arrest some of the very senior figures in that organisation. So you see the backlash from that as well. So there's okay. so many agendas all feeding into one. So but very briefly, Alison, just to finish, Stormont has been recalled, but the politicians getting together to talk about this, is that going to make a blind bit of difference? Not, not in the slightest. I mean, the, the people who are right now I don't think they particularly care anymore what politicians say. But I do think that last week when we had political unionism, you know, calling on the chief constable to resign. That was not, I think those words weren't used wisely. They have given justification to these types of attacks made young people think that the police are legitimate targets, not the enemy. So what we would hope that Recall and Stormont would do would mean the politicians would have to sort of dial down the rhetoric and try and calm this before the situation gets to a point where it can no longer be controlled. Okay, thank you very much for being with us on The Tonight Show, Alison. And we're joined now by Dermot Ferriter, Professor of Modern Irish History at University College Dublin. There was a tweet tonight from Arlene Foster in response to the events in Belfast tonight and that burning of the bus. It went, this is not protest, this is vandalism and attempted murder. These actions do not represent unionism or loyalism. They're an embarrassment to Northern Ireland and only serve to take the focus off the real lawbreakers in Sinn Féin. My thoughts are with the bus driver. Dermot, what do you make of that approach from Arlene Foster? Well, I think Arlene Foster needs to stop tweeting and start talking seriously uh, about the issues that are at stake here. Um, and the stakes are very high. You know, this is a very volatile, febrile uh, situation, as Arlene Foster is well aware of. Uh, there's a tactic going on in the DUP at the moment, which is about focusing on the lawbreakers in Sinn Féin, a reference, of course, to the Bobby Story funeral. Uh, and that was a reprehensible um, act by Republicans to organise that pr provocative and irresponsible uh, funeral back in the summer. Um, but at the same time, uh, Arlene Foster has now put herself in a position where she's calling for the Chief Constable to resign uh, and is trying to focus attention uh, on that. You'll be well aware how difficult uh, a nut policing has been to crack uh, in, in Northern Ireland over many decades. Uh, and it's still a very delicate uh, situation. Um, and this is a diversionary tactic, I think, really. Uh, Arlene Foster is well aware that the DUP has not played a particularly uh, clever game over the last couple of years since Brexit. Um, and they are seeking, it seems, to um, put the blame in all sorts of uh, different directions, rather than looking very closely at what is required of leadership 
within political unionism now. And there is an onus, of course, on Arlene Foster to try and rise to that challenge of leadership. And she's not doing it at the moment. Is that driven, though, by a fear that as they come to celebrate 100 years since the creation of Northern Ireland, that they know that it actually is coming to an end at the same time? Well, I mean, this is, is a part of it. I mean, this is supposed to be an opportunity for the DUP uh, to celebrate 100 years of Northern Ireland. What do they have to celebrate at the moment? There are actually remarkable parallels with the 50th birthday uh, of Northern Ireland in 1971. Not that, of course, the violence is, is on anything like the scale it was in 1971. Uh, but that sense of um, a unionism that is asserting the success uh, of a state, whilst at the same time the images that are coming uh, from Belfast and from Northern Ireland at the moment uh, really would suggest something um, completely different, uh, quite the opposite. Uh, there is, of course, an awful lot of anxiety and a lot of the defiance uh, of the DUP and a political unionism is often tempered by that sense of anxiety, uh, that they're running out of road uh, and that when they disengage from difficult uh, dialogue or when they do begin to run out of political uh, road, uh, they begin to target uh, other sectors when it comes to their rhetoric and when it comes to the blame game. Now, you could say that the whole politics of memory in Northern Ireland, of course, which are always very volatile, uh, are feeding into that uh, to a degree. But so too are all of the vistas that opened up as a result uh, of Brexit. And also, of course, the DUP uh, strategy around Brexit. Um, there was an opportunity, it seemed, a couple of years ago to try and perhaps work with Theresa May's government uh, to come up uh, w with a solution to their particular dilemma that might involve Britain, of course, you know, being involved in a, uh, a regulatory uh, solution um, that, you know, would, would perhaps satisfy unionism. Uh, but they opted to align themselves with the arch Brexiteers. Uh, and as unionists have discovered since the foundation of the state in Northern Ireland, uh, they can't rely on London. They certainly won't trust Dublin. Uh, so where does it leave it when they go back to the cauldron? Um, that is Northern Ireland. But if they've overplayed their hand, I mean, what can happen for them now? If you do have this regulatory border down the Irish Sea, which now makes many of them fear for their sovereignty, what solution can there be to a problem that they created for themselves? Yeah, and I, I wouldn't underestimate uh, that fear and that insecurity that's there at the moment, and it's understandable. Um, but the solution to it, of course, is to get involved in a structured process, in negotiating, in dialogue. You know, they have got to consider uh, what their options are at the moment. You know, they can't deny the realities. The way Peter Sherlow put it, an academic who would be coming at this from a unionist perspective and from a historical perspective, is that a traditional type of unionism is not going to save the union. Um, and that's not about dancing on a unionist grave. That's a recognition of the fundamental change in the complexion uh, of Northern Ireland, in the politics of Northern Ireland, and in the affiliations in Northern well, Ireland. That's what I was just going to come to, the sense of identity for Northern Ireland. How much has that actually shifted and changed? It's shifted hugely. So there are now yeah. a lot of people who don't see themselves necessarily as first and foremost as Irish or as British, but as this new creation of the last 100 years, Northern Irish. They do. And I mean, there doesn't seem to be a recognition of that. I mean, what unionists got with the Belfast Agreement was a recognition that, you know, the union was secure as long as the people of Northern Ireland wanted it to remain secure. I mean, they have that commitment. But the Belfast Agreement was also about self-determination. Um, and, you know, Arlene Foster has been talking recently with other members of the DUP to the Loyalist Communities Council, which has been very quiet, of course, about the uh, trouble at the moment. Um, the Loyalist Communities Council now have said that they are no longer supporting uh, the Belfast Agreement. Um, and unionism doesn't have the supremacy uh, you know, to be able to dictate the pace uh, of change and to define the identity of Northern Ireland. They keep making assertions, for example, um, about, 
you know, nearly half of the population of Northern Ireland no longer having confidence in, in policing in Northern Ireland. You know, they are not in a position to be speaking for half or nearly half of the population of Northern Ireland. That doesn't reflect their political but strength. But do the politicians the really speak for the people? What about the younger people who say, to take the example of a Rory McIlroy, identify themselves as Northern Irish, who don't want to get caught in this old dilemma, or are you Irish or are you British? Well, I mean, this has been one of the, the very positive developments um, in, in Northern Ireland in recent years, that you don't have that same binary approach uh, to identity. Uh, and of course, the Belfast Agreement was supposed to facilitate that. But what we have at the moment is a return to the siege tactics. Uh, and these are well-worn tactics at this stage. You'll remember David Irvine, for example, the loyalist paramilitary turned politician uh, who was very involved in the negotiation of the Belfast Agreement. And he was very critical uh, about what he saw in the 80s as unionist politicians using uh, the loyalist uh, communities, those who were uh, feeling disenchanted and disengaged and neglected uh, and whipping up tensions um, and then disowning them when it suited We only have about 30 seconds. Do you think, are we moving towards a United Ireland referendum or given the circumstances, is that necessarily a good thing at present? I think at present what is needed is a period of calm. You know, this whole uh, Brexit transition period, there needs to be a bedding down of that. Uh, and the way unionists can contribute to that uh, is not by sending uh, accusatory tweets. The way to deal with that is by showing leadership, calling for calm uh, and the need to engage with all of the interested parties. There are very clever and interesting politicians uh, in Northern Ireland beyond the DUP uh, and their voices need to be heard as well. Do you think we'll have a referendum in the next decade? As Bertie Hearn has suggested, 2028? 20, I'd be doubtful uh, that the circumstances uh, will be deemed to be suitable uh, for that referendum by those who, you know, under what we have at the moment, are in the position to call that. That's all we have time for tonight. Our thanks to Dermot Ferreter. I'll be back on radio tomorrow afternoon today, FM. Back here tomorrow night at 10 o'clock. For now, good night and stay home and stay safe. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.